Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. It's your host, John Scardina. I am so excited for this episode. As I say, every week, every week we have great people, but there is one person who stands out among the rest. Obviously, Pete Gaynor, the great Pete Gaynor, frequent flyer on the show. I think this makes number four, four of 5,000, something like that. Yep. Uh, Pete, welcome. Welcome back. Thanks, Sean. Good to be back. So you've had quite the eventful uh, fall. We've seen... You flew overseas and you're you're helping out, and then actually when you were over there, there was a stampede in the stadium, and you and I talked a little bit about off offline yeah. about that. And then Hurricane Ian hits, and uh, you go and help out Team Rubicon, which was really cool to see that. Uh, by the way, before we get into all of that, very cool to see former head of FEMA getting out there and literally on roofs, putting on um, on tarps. We always talk about how you're a great example. That is being a great example. So, uh, you know, just thanks for helping across the field for sure. Great, great. So let's let's backtrack. Let's talk about stampedes and yeah. international relations. You were at our last Dipop. I believe you're going back to Dipop, and we talk about the dynamics of working with populations, and we can see it from the U.S. perspective of hey, locality and local customs, local procedures trying to instill best practice but overseas they might op operate differently right like you were talking about in indonesia how everybody operates with the same playbook can you walk us through how culturally that might be different yeah yeah so maybe just a little background just like how did i get to indonesia so um, yeah. um prior to prior to uh me becoming the FEMA administrator uh and as a state director uh i had been on uh, the Program Review Committee and a Commissioner for the Emergency Management Accreditation Program, or EMAP. Um, and EMAP is one of my one of my uh, uh, you know hobbies, I guess, because we got accredited in the City of Providence when I was the director there, and we also got accredited in the state of Rhode Island. So um, I, I like I like EMAP. I like the standards. I like uh, how they help you build a program, no matter the size of emergency management um, agency that you run. Uh, and so um, a while back, uh, Nicole, who runs the executive director, um, asked me if I was interested in in volunteering because it's all volunteers. Uh, they pay for all the travel, but, um, you know, uh, you, you have to take time off or ask your company to go to go on, on duty. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, so they were they had a program uh, run by the State Department uh, in, in Indonesia. Uh, the uh, embassy in Jakarta wanted to do some um, kind of kind of a baseline assessment of uh, the Indonesian National Police Force, mm -hmm. uh, and un unlike uh, in the U.S., uh, the uh, Indonesian National Police uh, own all the police from the very top to the very bottom, right? So it's it's not like in the U.S. where you have at the very top maybe the FBI, uh, and at the very bottom you may have a local sheriff. Uh, and all different jurisdictions owned by or, you know, uh, managed by different chiefs and sheriffs. This is all one one force. Uh, I think the population of Indonesia is about 240,000, uh, uh, 240 million. Oh, I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and then uh, police officers, uh, about 400,000 uh, in the in the uh, Indonesian National Police. So okay. uh, we went there and we did an, uh, an assessment uh with the State Department uh, out mm -hmm. of the embassy uh, to kind of look at, uh, you know, offer some capability building uh, to the to the uh, the police 
because they're interested in in how to become better, more efficient. Uh, they are essentially the first responders for everything that happens from the local level to the national level. So, um, you know, along with their, their firefighter uh, brothers and sisters, uh, I think for pretty much if there's something happening in a local community in Indonesia, uh, there is a Indonesian police officer that is probably uh, not too far away. Real quick, we're gonna pause for this week's Disaster Tough endorsements. How do you spell Doberman Emergency Management? EOP, OEP, HVA, HMP, Thyra, TTX, Drone, PDA. Whenever you need an expert, Doberman Emergency Management field experts are there for support. Contact an expert at DobermanEMG.com today. The L3 Harris Extreme 400P radio solves problems and is specifically designed for emergency services. How do we know? We field tested it with medical, urban search and rescue and collapse and confined structures. This radio is amazingly tough. Check out the L3 Harris Extreme 400P radio at L3Harris.com right now. Okay, let's jump back in. Interesting. So in terms of the pros and cons of that, obviously we see, you know, we have all these different agencies and groups and authorities and jurisdictions, which streamlines and make things easier for locality. But in terms of a national perspective, are there pros to saying, hey, if we all had similar playbooks, obviously there's cons. We can talk about the cons. But in terms of the pros and lessons learned that we can gain from a different perspective, are there things where we could say, hey, like, you know, what can we take from that? Or, or is it all really all like, hey, people really should adopt the way we're, we're operating? Yeah. And, and, you know, one of the things I think we were careful uh, about doing is, is trying not to compare mm. uh, Indonesian police to you know, uh, or, or, the, or their practices to the way we, we do in the United States, right? Because mm. it, it's in some cases, I think it's unfair. And um, in some places where they're strong, you know, when, when, maybe we're not as uh, is sophisticated and vice versa. So mm. uh, we, we try not to compare each, you know, apples to apples, because again, I think it's just an unfair comparison. Uh, and, you know, their method, uh, seems to work for them. Uh, I think like everyone else, uh, there's, there's always room for improvement uh, everywhere to include uh, the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and one of the things, I mean, if you like standardization, right, if you, if you really want things standardized, uh, their method is that the headquarters, and I'm, I'm speaking in general terms here. Right, you know, absolutely. Right? Yeah. But, you know, the headquarters would write a plan uh, for, for search and rescue, and that plan is basically the plan uh, that they use from top to bottom. So every other, you know, every police department in every little district mm-hmm. or province, they know what how the other uh, province or district operates, basically, right? Yeah. Uh, now, there's some goodness in that, I guess, because you you know it's, it's like ICS, right? You if everyone speaks a, a common language, then you all know how everyone operates. I think the uh, the flip side of that is there's not a lot of room for discretion in some cases, right? That, yeah. Um, because it's a plan from the headquarters, uh, you, you you don't have a lot of discretion, you know. And then you look at the United States, and I think we've learned, you know, and and I'll speak from the the FEMA point of view. I think early on, you know, we had tried to write specific plans for specific things, and everyone needed to adopt it. It didn't work because we realized that every uh, state, every county, every city, every you know, municipality is different and all mm-hmm. unique. And so we developed a framework for everyone uh, to operate by. And, and so those are, kind of, those are kind of the differences. And I think if it works for you, it works. Uh, and you can learn lessons uh, in both directions. 
Yeah, Steve Johnson talked a little bit about this on one of his episodes. In addition to running the Seaburn program for all of British Army, he's also an educator, but he's also a police officer, yeah. which is <laughs> ridiculous to me that he does all three. But he talks about a lot about discretion and how uh, you know it's important to have discretion in, in terms of moments. After living in Japan a couple times, I've uh, this is just world culture taken by John. Some things in culture are right and some things in culture are wrong, but most of it is just different. And if you can just recognize that, you know, unless there's like major outliers where, where there's maybe harm that is being caused, uh, you know, it's, I think it's fascinating to look at different cultures and how they approach different topics. I, I came home from Japan and I'm, I'm all American, right? But uh, there's definitely things about Japanese culture that I learned to respect and, it, you know, instill in myself. And so it's just like anytime where I hear that somebody had an opportunity to be overseas and experience something that's totally different, like our system works for us. Right. Yeah. But hearing about other systems, it, it does make me wonder um, why different. Right. And what about what are the pros and cons about being different? And I, I understand comparison, but in terms of like within that specific metric, but that being said, what an opportunity to go over there. But while you're over there, the stampede happens, right? Yeah. 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 I mean, talk yeah. about... A day or so before we leave it. Uh, and we had, so we had, uh, just to, as kind of a reference, we had flown to Jakarta, uh, and that's where the headquarters for the National Police is. And then uh, two separate teams, we, we went around the country visiting three different uh, locations um, and, and, and tried to talk to not just the headquarters level, but... You know the provincial level, and in some cases the the the, the district level, because mm -hmm. uh, we wanted to kind of again make an assessment and and you know uh, make some recommendations on best practices against the against the FEMA standards, right? So we, we tried to do that. So I, I think a day or so before we left, uh, there had been a soccer match in a and I and I, I, I don't remember the the, the, uh, the city or the town or the province uh, that uh, that had a soccer uh, match and. Um, there was some um, uh, it's like a miscommunication a, a or something. Team, right? A team lost, and the other and on one side got mad about it, and and uh, the Indonesian police uh, tried to break up uh, a riot or or you know civil unrest and used tear gas. Uh, and again, not having been on the scene and not knowing all the details, you know, uh, they did what they did uh, for whatever reason that they they decided to do it. Uh, I, I, I think uh, one of the factors in that is the the, uh, the International uh, Soccer Association uh, had prohibited the use of tear gas in, uh, in, in during soccer events because you've seen in the past, not just in, in Indonesia but across the world, where um, you know a, a losing soccer team uh, uh, gets upset and they have uh, they have some unrest or they have a riot and things turn mm -hmm. ugly. So. They had outlawed or at least prohibited in their rules that no tear gas, um, you know, uh, riot agents uh, could be used. So uh, it, it, didn't go, it didn't go well. Uh, uh, I want to <laughs> no, say, it did not. yeah, 170 or so uh, dead, I think trampled. Uh, and then a number of uh, injuries in hospitals, crushing injuries uh, where people tried to leave the stadium and, you know, doors were too, too, uh, narrow, uh, you know, again, too many people in a stadium designed for much, much less. Uh, and then, and then the list goes on. Right. So, 
Mm-hmm. Um, I am sure that they're looking at their procedures. I'm sure that the the uh, the president of the country and the populace and the legislators are having a hard look about practices. Like, hey, w- w- you know, you know, why why did you make that decision? And and uh, and obviously try to remedy that for future events or future uh, incidents that may occur. So let me compare it to another incident, and I'm probably asking you a question here off of that. Um, Seoul, Korea, Seoul, right? Just happened. They had a uh, Halloween uh, festival, yeah. and during the Halloween festival, something happened, and a riot, or not a riot, but a stampede, it's and again, crushing, a yeah, crushing yeah, event, yeah, crushing event. 150 plus dead, 150, you know, or more injured uh, through crushing injuries. From an emergency management standpoint, you know. We obviously have large crowds here. You just saw the Tennessee-Alabama game this year, which is different, but it could have been uh, dangerous and and it it turned out not to be very dangerous. But from an emergency management perspective, when we're talking about crowds and whether we're public venues in the city level or we're talking about large-scale events, what advice would you have for the planning process between responders who would be doing that job and to make sure that I don't know when the Macy day parade happens in New York, if something happened, how would the city start to mitigate those things even before the event? Yeah. I, I think it even starts at, at with the individual level. It's like everything else. It's, mm. it's individual preparedness. Uh, yeah. You know, I have, I have lots of, uh, lots of friends who are cops and, and uh, you know, I haven't been in the military, you know, there's certain things, um, uh, that, that you are always concerned about. And so I just, you know, whenever I go to dinner with one of my police officer friends, you know, we, he, we always sit, uh, you know, uh, facing the door, uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, not, and, and so where are your surroundings? Uh, where's the exit? Where's the entrance? Uh, who's in the, who's in the crowd? Like who's at dinner? I mean, it seems kind of overkill, but if just, and then just, you know, imagine to the soul Halloween party, that the last thing you're thinking about is 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 what happened, right? It just because you're out yeah. there having a good time, you're celebrating, right? It's it's all it's a friendly environment. Like it didn't start because of some you know some bad act. Uh, it just it just started. So I would just so I would say the first thing is whenever you're out, you know, by yourself with your family, driving. In this, you know, wherever you go, you, you need to be aware of your surroundings and 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 actually have a plan in your head mm-hmm. uh, for for scenarios. And and I I do it all the time. And, and maybe it's my military background. Maybe it's my friend, my police friends that that uh, you know has rubbed off on me. But you, you gotta you gotta have a plan, right? And that's again when you look at FEMA and have a plan, right? You gotta have a plan for all that stuff. I, I would not leave anything to chance these days. Uh, and especially if you have younger kids. I have a, I have a daughter who's, who's uh, 24 years old living by herself uh, out in yeah. Chicago. And I worry about it every day. And, and, uh, and I always tell her like, keep your, you know, uh, head on, you know, on a swivel, right? Don't, don't be looking down at your phone. Don't be walking around aimlessly. Right. You know, be, you know, be out there with purpose. So I think that's the that's the first thing you have to do is try to convince people that hey you have to take care of yourself right uh, you know how can a city like New York 
uh, or any other jurisdiction, you know, be responsible for every single thing that happens in their city every day, right? Mm. It, it, there's thousands of different things that dangers and hazards and threats that happen. It's really on the on the individual to do that. So, so I think that's the first thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's two other podcasts on our network who are going to be listening to this episode, and they're going to be dying to have you on because they all they talk about is individual preparedness. Nat Seller, you know, uh, Wesley Long, and, and yeah, Jason yeah. Perez. The the idea about situation awareness is really interesting to me. Our network actually shared a video from Brazil where there was a, a yoga group, not a yoga group, uh, some kind of like fitness group, and they were running in an outdoors, you know, just on the sidewalk, but by a restaurant. And somebody got up, thought thought it was uh, they were running away from something, and you see you see the entire restaurant get up and start running with them. They're just a running group. And for whatever reason, either somebody made a joke or somebody did something, but the entire crowd got up and started running with them and they were just a running group. And that's kind of situational awareness is that, that low level situation, you know, is is pretty embarrassing to be honest, right? Like we should be cognitive enough to say, okay, they're wearing jogging outfits, tennis shoes, they're in a group. There's nothing behind them, but things happen. Yeah. And, and, it, and you know, it, and it takes effort, right? It takes effort because you, it's, yeah. you can't have your mind, you know, in the locked and loaded position all the time, but, but it does take some effort to, to, you know, do those cursory things uh, again, to keep your, you know, not, not to be over the top, right? I'm not, I'm not talking about any of those things, but just to be uh, reasonable and logical and, and, you know, preventive and things that, mm. that could happen. Right. Um, um, I, I think we need to do more of that, whether it's, uh, some of these, you know, uh, unpredictable kind of things like a crushing incident or it's a deliberate thing, you know, like a hurricane or a tornado, like being prepared for those kind of things. I think it's it's more important than than ever. Yeah, but the, yeah. we've talked about this on the show before, too. It's like, how do you change a culture? There's a what was a New York Times article. Somebody came yeah. out and said 10 oh, percent of uh, the U.S. Um, is uh, considers themselves a preppers. Right. And so like it, it talks about the whole article talks about like anytime people talk about individual preparedness, they always go to the absolute extreme. Yeah. And yet there's this there's this moment where it could be just a running group or it could be, you know, a fire in a building. It could be something a little bit smaller yeah. that, you know, smart actions, a little bit of situational awareness can change everything. And even just knowing your insurance. I've asked a lot of my friends, especially after we had flooding in uh, St. Louis, they said, oh, what can I do for next time? I said, how many of you know where your insurance policy is for your house? And every single time they were like, ooh, I actually don't know where that's at. Yeah. It's like, well, that's the number one thing you should probably be aware of. You can update your Facebook status to safe later. You know, call your insurance. So how do and, we you change know, I, that? Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's, I think we're on like the the, the extremes, like the majority of people probably do nothing. And then there's a, there's a certain percentage of the population, which has grown over time. I, I think more I, than I saw that same report. Maybe it was a 60 minutes thing or something, right? Mm. It's grown from, you know, 3% to 10% over the past couple of years, which is, which is actually pretty interesting. And so, yeah. you know, on the far, the far end of that are people that are, you know, digging holes and, and building bunkers and, yeah. and uh, spray and, painting you know, trees, purple or something. Right. Yeah. Well, all, you know, all of it. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I think, you know, if, if you if you could find the magic in between. Right. Because, you know, when you say, you know, be prepared and, you know, have, you know, seven days of food or 14 days of food and water and insurance and all medicine. 
you know, I think some people like roll your eyes about, well, you know, why do you have to, why are you worrying about that? You know, mm -hmm. we live in a, a, the greatest country in the world. We have everything at our fingertips. We can go out and do and buy anything uh, in, in the moment. We just have to call, we just have to call Amazon. And today you can mm -hmm. get whatever you ordered this morning delivered on your front porch. So why do I need to be prepared? So it, it is, it, and I, I've talked about this before. It is really the, one of the hottest challenges to try to convince people to take some action. Right. Even if it's just a like one little bite at a time, but and small actions to make yourself and your family and your business and your community just better prepared. Um, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to throw it. It's not that it's not that hard. You have to be purposeful. Uh, in some cases, it doesn't cost any money. Um, right. I mean, so, mm. so and this is this was the challenge, I think, at FEMA, when you when you kind of look at the look at the country and say, yeah, everyone needs to be prepared. But everyone can't afford to be prepared, right? You have to realize that the demographics are, are, have a wide, wide range of, uh, of ability and capability uh, and, uh, and financial uh, wherewithal, right? So mm -hmm. um, you, you, you got to find that, that, I won't say middle ground, but that sweet spot uh, that entices more people to take action uh, on their own. Yeah, those who should do, those who can't, we should help. Right. Like that's like that's really where it comes down to for me as like a humanitarian side of being an emergency manager, because there's sometimes I've gotten out to disasters and it's been like, why? Like you could have avoided this situation as somebody who very close to me just went through the ringer from Hurricane Ian yeah. and they had every capability, knowledge, skill set stuff to get out and they didn't. And they got and now they're impacted. Yeah, so let's, my, my heart breaks for him, but yeah. at the so same time, it's like we should let's talk about that. Ian because because it's it's an interesting examination, especially from my point of view, mm. having been uh, you know on the ground. Well, well, serve you know again. I, I I've served as a local and a state and as the federal uh, emergency management administrator, mm. and then and then to go down as a as just a volunteer to see uh, and, and and live it, right? You just don't fly in or fly out because I think that's kind of the the, the easy thing to do sometimes. And, and and I think it's necessary. You have to you have to do that, right? You don't want yeah. to impede the uh, the uh, rescue or or uh, restoration of a of a yeah for taking so, pictures. Yeah. yeah. So but uh, so I so I, I realized uh, and we're talking about my team Rubicon uh, event I did a couple of weeks ago in Florida, Port Charlotte. Mm. Uh, you know, I realized as the FEMA administrator, I've I've approved uh, mission assignments, and those are things that uh, we. This is how you get another agency to do something for you in the federal government. You mission assign mm -hmm. an agency, so we mission assign the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers to do the Blue Top mission, <clears throat> and they're really they're really good at it. And you know, and you know, the average Blue Top mission, I don't know how much it costs, but let's just say it costs fifty million dollars for a big disaster like Ian. Um, and, and, you know, so as the administrator, I approve it and you feel pretty good about it. And then, you know, the public affairs people in a couple of weeks show you pictures of blue tarps on roofs and you say, well, we're making progress down there. Right. And then I, and I've had the ability now to, uh, of the $50 million in blue tarps and furring strips and nails and tape, I've got to, I've got to hold one of those many you know a couple dozen of those nails that the 50 million dollars bought and bang them into a roof one nail at a time right uh, and so that whole thing is, is a pretty humbling experience having lived both ends of it 
Yeah, I mean, talk about true. I mean, you can't get any further from both ends of that spectrum, yeah. right? Um, that's that's pretty phenomenal. Do Do you think your perspective, if you went back and were approving those missions, do you think you would either do it differently and or would you feel some s- sense of more ownership over that? Like any changes yeah. that you well, would have you know, here's, here's the, you know, we uh, in Port Charlotte and I was on the, um, uh, on, we had a couple uh, forward operating bases down there. And, and so we were in the, um, a couple communities, Holiday Park, uh, mm-hmm. retirement community over 55, and Inglewood South, uh, another retirement community over 55. Wow. All, all made up of uh, mobile homes or module homes. Uh, and you right know, there too. right. It, it's, it's, uh, it's, it, it was devastating. So, so my first inclination, right. If I was the, if I was a female administrator today, I would outlaw mobile homes. They, 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 they are, <laughs> awesome. they are insufficient. And especially like, you know, if you look and they're nice, right. They're nice. Uh, uh, but they're not nice for Florida or for Louisiana, or for Alabama, or for Mississippi, or for, you know, the Gulf Coast of Texas, or anywhere there's a disaster, maybe even an earthquake, right? They're not tornadoes. Bad. Tornadoes, tornadoes aim right? for, yeah, they aim for these uh, mobile home parks, for they're, sure. They're not built for it. So in this community, I, know, I just give an example of Holiday Park, community about 400 mobile homes, very, very nice community uh, mm-hmm. prior to Ian, right? Yeah. Uh, mostly all retirees. Um you know, there's not a there's not a two by four or a two by six to be found, right? So I live in New England, and and mm. all the houses here, uh, probably these days are all built with at least two by fours, and probably more more uh, uh, common two by sixes. It's the weather. It's you know, it's it's all those kind of things. Yeah. But they're, but they're well built. They're well built homes. Expensive homes, but well built homes. Uh, and and then you have mobile homes. Uh, and it's a great place to retire. Uh, but when you see these things opened up like a spinach can, right, you have to scratch your head about why Why would we allow people uh, in hurricane-prone areas like Florida to live in substandard construction? I'm saying I'm, they're nice, right, but substandard construction, two-by-two wooden ceiling joists, you know, with aluminum, aluminum siding and, and foam, you know, you, when you go down, you can probably go down there now in some of these places. And all, all that you see is uh, styrofoam boards all broken up everywhere. Uh, uh, aluminum siding everywhere in trees and bushes, uh, in the water. Uh, and then all your contents of your, of your home all over the place. Right. And, and, the majority of these people have retired to Florida for the rest of their life. And so they're not, they don't have, they're not working anymore. They retired. Uh, they're probably on an income that's generally restricted to their, what they've yeah. saved. And now, you know, these homes become unlivable. And in Florida, right. Uh, if it gets wet inside, black mold grows instantaneously. You can yeah. you walk in these communities and you can smell the black mold. So uh, yeah, I would, I would, I would outlaw them. They're, they're absolutely inferior living conditions uh, in the U.S., especially in in uh, places that have, uh, you know, hurricanes or, or, or tornadoes. It's uh, it's 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 a, it's a crime. It's a crime. Well, that uh, that brings me back to Hurricane Harvey. We were 
I don't know. We were doing some kind of model testing like several months after and went down to Corpus Christi and I couldn't believe it looked as if the hurricane passed through five days ago and it was three months later. And it's people forget how much damage and how like after the news leaves, they are still going to deal with yeah. debris for months and years and all that stuff. And so it's like, man, anytime we can help eliminate that, George Siegel has a great documentary for those who are listening about uh, the last house standing that addresses this about building codes. Yep. There's a lot of people addressing building codes. And yet after, uh, what was it? Um, Joplin, Missouri, after, yeah. you know, the tornado went right through the town, Missouri had uh, an option to build better, you know, use better building codes and they opted to not to use them. And it's like, how do you fix stupid? Like, that's really what it comes down to me. It's like, you, we know, we know that mobile homes don't do well with anything, with any kind of natural hazard. We know that we shouldn't build in, uh, you know, flood zones, flood ways. If you look at Texas and yet, anytime this opportunity arises where we're like, hey, this is something simple that can just stop us spending a lot of extra money for no reason, uh, we don't really take those opportunities when they arise. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, you, you mentioned building codes. I think building codes, uh, one of the most important things we can do as emergency managers, right, is that because that's where it all starts, right? If you want to build a resilient community, you want to have a community that when it when a disaster comes through your community, uh, you 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 can bounce back quicker because you had you had stronger building codes uh, and you were smart about how you zoned different things and kept people away from you know in some cases if you had a flooding issue away from the water or or potential flooding uh, locations um, you know we we have to be we have to be smarter about that uh, and and I've said before you know it, the the cost of disasters and the frequency of disasters and the intensity of disasters is becoming unaffordable, right? So let's be smart about it. And I think we're on, I think we're on a better track today with with uh, you know all the mitigation money that that we've uh, uh, that we've gotten uh, from actually both administrations. I think we're on the right track. We need to do more, but um, it really is the, it really is the thing that makes us stronger. It's just stronger building codes, right? And that and that is a local issue, right? Very mm -hmm. few states and and the federal government has very little impact on what happens locally with building codes but it's a local issue and you can you have a lot of sway if you're a you know on a town council or city council mm -hmm. or or just a resident that wants to live in a safer community uh you have a voice and you, and you should use it and uh and i think it, it should be it should actually be uh you know for associations like international association of emergency management nema uh you know building code should be like you know, on the top 10 of a national platform about what we care about as emergency managers in the country. Absolutely. That's like probably the soundbite that we're taking from this. Uh, so even that's like situational awareness for just like how you can dramatically impact like the preparedness conversation for all those who I, I've actually had funny enough. Uh, some people have pretty low situational awareness about building codes and they say, well, why do building codes really matter? If you wonder why we're not impacted by every time there's an earthquake, right here in the US, you're, you're welcome. Like earthquake, you know, building codes matter. Look at Japan. It was the tsunami in 2011 that rocked their country, not the actual earthquake because of building codes. And so um, one, of the, one of the ways, and you're talking about joining and working with your local community. One thing that I did recently is I joined my uh, local chamber of commerce. 
they have schools on there. They have that. They have government. They have all these uh, committees with working with uh, economics and um, even with the uh, state legislature. All these groups that are. This is a really influential chamber of commerce. Luckily enough for me, because where I live. But it was a way for me to start interacting with people. And I'm the only person in that room. There was, I don't know, 500 people in the room who were, who had any kind of knowledge about disasters. I had superintendents come up to me. We had the mayor come up to me. We had uh, somebody from the governor's office. We had somebody from the next state over who was on the, uh, who's visiting all come up to me. I didn't even have to go to them. And they say, Hey, you you know about disasters? Cause it's right after the flooding. And said, yeah. So we started talking about business continuity and we talked about building codes and we talked about active shooters in schools and we talked about multiple resource officers and we talked about all these different things. And funny enough, the the only time in my entire career where I don't have to go to somebody, they all come to me because I'm just part of the crowd. And I think that's what emergency managers need to do. We need to think of creative and different ways to get involved with our community where they they see John, they don't see you know, the EMA who's trying to push agenda where they are looking at their budget all the time, right? Like getting involved and being more interesting and then just our one lane, um, I, I think can help out in a lot of different areas. And I think it's a pretty clever way to attack situational awareness. But that being said, there has to be countless ways emergency managers are trying to help our community. So I'm just calling out my audience right now. If you found some different fun way to interact with people and get them to come to your table versus the other way around, let us know in the comments. Put it in Disaster Tough Podcast on social media because we need to raise the level of situational awareness in our country, for sure. Yeah. I, you know, I, and I have, I've done numerous you know local events state events federal events and i think the the uh the, the one thing that sticks with me is that, that people just don't know right and then it's not yeah. you know we all you know live a busy life and we all have these these priorities the kids the school the car the job and you know very few of us right maybe you and i in our free time are researching uh disaster stuff because we, we're big disaster geeks right uh, but I think I think just the average American just doesn't know uh, uh, because, again, they have a, they have a busy life. So I think when you provide them information that they haven't heard before that is valuable, then I think you can start turning some heads on that. Uh, so I think we just need to do more of that, more education. Uh, you know, you don't have to ram it down their throat. Uh, you know, Americans are really smart. Uh, and and but we, you need to do more of it. And again, and again, I said it before, I think preparedness is one of the hardest things that uh, that emergency manager uh has to do right we, we, we can get your attention and keep your attention for a short period of time like during a oncoming uh or potential disaster right i think i think the american public pays attention to that right mm. but it doesn't last long uh before we go on to our normal lives right w whatever that is so um yeah you can do it in a disaster but i think the trick is you know how do you do it on a more consistent uh year-round basis right and again, you know, gain their attention, keep their attention, and then uh, encourage them to take some action to protect their family, their business, and themselves. You could say gainer their attention, if you will. <laughs> Is that a pun? Sounds, like like a dad, sounds like a dad joke to me, John. <laughs> I don't know. I have a three-year-old and a one-year-old, but we're kind of on the right. dad jokes. We're still All improving. Right. Yeah. Hey, uh, you know, I'm just going to do one last call out here because we're talking about situational awareness. We're talking about good things. There's a company out there that was just featured on the New York Times, Instinct Ready. 
I happen to know them very well. They're also on our podcast network. You know, but Instinct Ready, you look at emergency kits and you look at go bags and pretty much everybody does the same thing. But only one group has been on the New York Times because they're like they the event reinvented something that people didn't think they could reinvent. And the making it more logical, the best emergency preparedness. Now that's a blacklisted word in my company. We say readiness. But the best readiness in that you can provide is like convenience and making your life easier, whether it's small events or big events, gaining that situational awareness, doing things, changing the messaging to make it uh, a bit more and doing more in the community. All these things, it's not a, it's not like a one or nothing, right? There's lots of different ways to, to look at this. I mean, Pete, you were just overseas talking about different cultures. You're in Hurricane Ian and talking about what you do as an administrator now. Learning, constant learning, constant, uh, you know, helping the different community. Great example, Pete, for everything you've done. And uh, we'll keep attacking this message on how to help people and uh, gain their own situational awareness. So thanks again for coming on the show. You're welcome. Good to see you, John. Okay, everybody, as always, uh, The Shameful, if you like this episode, we need a five-star rating and subscribe. If you got something from the great Pete Gainer, if you've gainered your knowledge, I don't know if that's going to take off or not. I probably won't. But won't. if you gain something from... <laughs> well, yeah. Prove me wrong. Make sure Gainer your knowledge is a hashtag uh, on these posts. We really like uh, ideas. We, we want to we be innovative. That's what makes people disaster tough, Right best decisions, best timing, right message, right people, all that kind of stuff. So put out your ideas on Disaster Tough Podcast on all our social media channels, and we'll see you for the next one. 